Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 28 of Season 4 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we take a hilarious and poignant journey through the 1989 Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan rom-com, One Harry Met Sally, One Minute at a Time. I'm Rob, and join me once again on this lovely Wednesday in the middle of the beginning of February is Alan Sanders from The Wilder Ride. Welcome back, Alan. Thanks so much. I definitely have been enjoying hanging out uh, with you and, and and talking about a wonderful rom-com. That's right. And especially, you know, we're in the middle of a football game. Yeah, so There's, there, there, are, there are worse places to be. Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I don't know how comfortable, you know, both Harry and Jess are feeling in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's nice to be a fly on the wall listening to their conversation here, but I, I don't know if it's the most comfortable type of conversation to be listening in on. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. But episode 28 begins with Jess explaining himself and ends with Jess asking a shocking question. So we've been talking the last uh, day and a half about the this this interesting conversation between Harry and Jess, where Harry is informing his best friend Jess that his wife Helen has decided that she wants to take a break from their marriage, you know, and then uh, you know she she actually said to him she doesn't know if she's ever loved him, mm. and that's how things ended yesterday. And today, you know, first of all, the the, the connection between yesterday's episode and today's is we hear Harry saying thanks, Jess. Now, how do you think, how do you take that thanks, Jess? Is he being facetious here or is he being sincere? Oh, no, it's definitely wry sarcasm. Like, thanks. That's, I, I appreciate that. That, you know, thanks for cushioning the blow. <laughs> right. But if, but again, is he still being somewhat sincere about the fact that he's, you know, talking to his best friend and trying to get sympathy from him, trying to get empathy from him? No, and no, instead no. This he is just totally says, that's no. Thanks. This is that total sarcastic, snarky. Thanks, man. Like it's not a. It's not a. Oh, I'm glad you told me the absolute truth. I feel so much better now hearing it from you. No, this is snark. This is definitely sarcasm. All right. Okay. That's fair. I I I read read it that way also, but I just wanted to make sure. You know, sometimes you know different people can have different perspectives on the way certain scenes are played out you know dialogue well they'd be wrong yeah that's fine that's okay but i wanted to see if you were i wanted to see if you were wrong you know there you go <laughs> i was looking for I the wrongness well in that one <laughs> right so here i'll just i'll just go through their conversation and then we'll, we'll pick it apart uh afterwards because this whole minute is constantly their their conversation or it's actually mostly um harry just telling his side of the thing so Jess tries, tries to defend himself and he goes, no, I'm a writer. I know dialogue. And that's particularly harsh. <laughs> I actually think that's very funny. Like yes. He's justifying how harsh it is because, hey, I come up with stuff and I know in my head what sounds harsh. And this is this is bad. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very pompous line, I must say. Uh -huh. You know, I'm a writer, so I know dialogue. You know, it's like <laughs> just because you're a writer doesn't mean you necessarily know dialogue. You know? <laughs> So who knows? And uh, and the irony of it is, if this is supposed to be in a real world situation, it's not a question of dialogue. It's a question of someone actually saying something. You know, it's not a writer. I mean, obviously, in from our world, you know, Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron wrote that line, but in their world, it's something that Helen actually said. 
you know, so it, it I, I, I like the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of breaking the fourth wall here. You know, it, I don't think it's intentional, but it's for him to say, I know dialogue and that's particularly harsh, you know, and right. so it, it is kind of a, a sneaky fourth wall break when you think about, yeah, obviously the writer of the script wrote that line and then wrote the, the character to be a writer to comment on writing that line. So <laughs> it is interesting from that perspective. Correct. Correct. So then Harry continues his, and then she tells me, like, he doesn't even acknowledge it. He just continues and goes, then she tells me that someone in her office is going to South America and she can sublet his apartment. I can't believe this. And the doorbell rings. I can sublet his apartment. The words are still hanging in the air, you know, like a balloon attached to a mouth, uh, like a cartoon. Right. So I go to the door and there were moving men there. Now I start to get suspicious. I said, Helen, when did you call these movers? And she doesn't say anything. So I asked the movers, when did this woman book you for this gig? And they're just standing there. Three huge guys, one of them wearing a T-shirt that says, don't f*** Mr. Zero. So I said, Helen, <laughs> when did you make this arrangement? She says, a week ago. I said, you've known for a week and you didn't tell me? And she says, I didn't want to ruin your birthday. And then they, they go through a uh, a wave, another wave at that point. And then Jess looks at him and goes, you're, you're saying Mr. Zero knew you were getting a divorce a week before you did? Mr. <laughs> Zero knew. I can't believe this. I haven't told you the bad part yet. What could be worse than Mr. Zero knowing? And that's all the dialogue we have here for this minute. You know, it's, it, first what? of all, it's a great conversation. It flows it really is. well between the two of them. They're not paying any attention to the, to the giants or the lions. No one, neither one of them cares what's happening in the game. They care about the wave. That's all they care about, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to where they are. But the, the, the conversation is great. You know, it, it gives us a lot of information about who, uh, I guess you could say, who Helen is, <laughs> by the way that mm -hmm. she's acting, you know. Um, but it also tells us a lot about Harry's character, about how he's taking this whole thing. You know, you, you, we saw him in 1977. He seemed like a guy who is just looking to, to, to you know, find someone to, to spend some time with, you know, he's not mm -hmm. looking for some, for a, a deep commitment anywhere. And then in 1982, we find out that he actually is happy about the fact that he's getting married. And now, you know, five years later, he's not so sure about that. He's, he's actually very broken up about this whole thing, which is uh, very different from the Harry that we would expect based on what we've seen, you know, from his personality beforehand. But obviously, this whole uh, dialogue, this whole conversation is just laying groundwork for, for later parts of the movie, you know, to put him into this stage of depression. Mm -hmm. and, and it works. One of the questions I had, because you, you, you talk about how did certain things sound to your ear. So I want to kind of put out there once again, maybe it's because I read into things and I'm wondering, you know, why choose this line about her saying, well, that's when she says, I have this friend who's going to be in South America and he could sublet me his apartment. My mind immediately went to, he's not in South America. That's the guy you want to move in with. You're just too afraid to say it first. You didn't even know the movers were going to show up yet. So you're just talking about, I, I found a place I might be able to hang out short term, like temporarily. Well, while he's in air quotes in South America, that's how I heard it. Like. That's the guy she's moving in with. It may not be, but 
it immediately I started thinking about what else is she trying to say in a cushioning way, you know. Right. I, so I don't know if you heard it that way. Was it, did you think it was really going to be an empty apartment, or do you think she's just saying that? But the guy she wanted to move in with is that same guy. No, I mean, well, Ira is not going to South America. She's just moving in with Ira. You know, we're gonna we'll find out about that tomorrow. Right, but is that okay? So, but at this moment in time, did you think hearing her say that that the guy she really would rather be with? He's not like it's that apartment. He, he's she's moving into the apartment of the guy she'd rather be with. Correct, obviously, obviously. But but I mean, you're talking about when the first time I saw this movie, or right? Like if we if we're pretending like we don't know the whole movie start to finish, and you hear her say to him, or he's recounting the story, or she's like, "Hey, and by the way, uh, a friend of mine, well, again, air quotes, friend at work, will be in South America, and said he could sublet me his apartment." My uh, every spidey sense I had was like she wants to move in with whoever this guy is, but she's trying to make it sound like, oh, it's a platonic thing. He's somewhere else. It's just going to be an empty apartment. Right. I don't know which way it was going to go, but my my spidey senses said you're going to move in with some guy. It's not about moving out into uh, on your own, even if it's not this particular guy. I already knew by saying that the way she did, the way he's recounting it. She already had somebody lined up and was planning to move in with that person. Right. Okay. Of course. That that, that goes to the thing. And and again, part of the whole idea here is is that, you know, I'm assuming that Helen knows that eventually Harry's going to find out what the real story is here. So why mm-hmm. even try lying? Why not just say, you know, I met someone else and you know, <laughs> I don't love you, and I, that's it. I know it's harsher. It's harsher than. Then, then, you know, Jess will say that it's harsh dialogue, but still, it's, you know, it's the truth. She knows that. What, where will what will hurt him more if she tells him the truth now or if he finds it out later? Well, and I think that's always a fun concept to talk about in relationships because I think some people, because they don't want to hurt somebody all at once, it's the whole idea of picking at the bandaid versus ripping it off. Right. They think that ripping it off would hurt too much, so it'd be better to do it in slowed little drips and drabs. But as we all know, it's far better to just rip the Band-Aid off than to pick at it. But Correct. human nature being what it is, so often in an effort to spare somebody and maybe only hurt them in small, in small doses versus one big massive blow, we tend to lie to them and justify it as trying to make it a – making them – it's a – I only lied to you because I wanted you to get into this slowly. I didn't want to hurt you at once. I kind of wanted to hurt, I guess I wanted to hurt you slowly over time. Exactly. Well, which is, which is apparently what, what she is trying to do here. You know, as far as Helen's concerned, she, she, you know, she doesn't even know if she's ever loved him. So that already says something, you mm-hmm. know, and, but, but at least it, it makes her somewhat, you know, human. The fact that she's, she's still willing to try to spare his feelings, you know, even if she doesn't love him. And she wants to get away from him as quickly as possible, you know, that even Mr. Zero knows about it. You know, on the flip thing. side, while this creates some great comedy and it's it's again, the way Billy Crystal delivers it with sort of a near deadpan, but it's still funny because of his pauses and the pacing. By her saying that line from yesterday. About I don't know that I ever really loved you. I think the nice thing it does from a rom-com perspective we never have, you know, we're not seeing her in that moment. We're hearing the retelling of the moment. 
but it makes us suddenly not really like her so much anymore. Right. You know, it, exactly. it gives us then as an audience member, it's going to be okay for us to root for Billy Crystal to find someone who does love him rather than if they were both kind of in love and she just wasn't sure about her way in the world or wasn't sure if she took the wrong turn and just needed some time. We'd be wondering, is he doing the right thing looking for somebody? But when she specifically calls out, I'm not sure I ever loved you, it immediately puts a distance. I'm like, okay, I don't have any sympathy for you now. Right, exactly. I mean, she's also not the smartest person. You don't you you don't wait until two minutes before the movers are supposed to show up to, to drop a bomb like this. <laughs> yeah, she could have been a little smarter about the whole way she's doing it. Um <laughs> I, I, I think or, so. Or uh, the kind of character, once again, the way it's written, it shows that she's one of those people who doesn't want the confrontation and knows that by the time the movers show up, how much, how likely is it for him to have a kind of an episode or try to beg her to stay that might convince her? Now they're there. There's not a whole lot either one of them can do. The ball's rolling. Right. But they've also, they've been together five plus years. So she knows, or she at least, we presume she knows his personality. She knows how he's going to act. And she knows, right. you know. So maybe she knows that if the movers are there, he's not going to do anything. Maybe that's exactly. what it comes down I think, to. I think when and you look wrong. at this and we – well, <laughs> I think when we break it down, I think that's – she was a – yes, we, we know that she understood him and tried to manipulate it to her advantage. Yes, for sure. I completely agree with you on that. Okay, so um, one of the things that, that, that Harry mentions that Helen tells him is that uh, – you know, that someone in her office is going to South America and that she can sublet his apartment. Don't worry. I'm not going to start uh, quizzing you about South America. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but what is, do you know the legal ramifications of a sublease? Yeah. Um, Cause technically what could happen is if you sublease to somebody, uh, depending how you set it up, you're still on the hook for the payment. What you're doing is you're setting it up to have somebody else cover that payment while you're gone. And so hopefully the bills get paid. But in all honesty, you're still on the hook for the whatever you signed originally. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, the whole idea of a sublease is that, you know, you've, you've leased the house, you've leased the car, whatever it could be, mm -hmm. and you have no use for it anymore. So you decide to uh, basically find someone else to take your place. But as you said, you're the one who's still in charge of the whole thing, yeah. which could cause a lot of problems because – you know, you're responsible for making sure the other person pays. You're responsible to make sure that, you know, depending on how much you're charging them, you might have to cover some of the costs. There are mm -hmm. even places where it is actually illegal to to charge someone more money in a sublease than what you already are paying. Right. You have to know the laws of the real estate market in your area. Uh, for yes. example, when before my wife and I got together, I had my own house. She had her own house. Uh, when we got together, we decided her house was closer to all the schools and had a little bit bigger backyard for the dogs. So instead of selling my house, because I liked the idea of having an investment property and I already had gotten it at a pretty good price and I'd been paying the mortgage for a few years, we decided to take the leap and I became a, a, a rentor um, and have um, had to create a rental contract and have had my house as a rental property where I still pay the mortgage. I'm still on the hook for that mortgage for that home. But I find families who will want to rent the home from me. Right. They sign a rental contract. I have a contract with them. But even in my state of Georgia, 
I have to make sure I do the due diligence of the background check to make sure that, you know, have they ever defaulted? Have they ever been thrown out? Have they ever been evicted? Because the laws, the way they're structured in our state, if somebody defaults, like they go three months without paying the bill and I want to kick them out, I have to go to a court. I have to have a court-ordered eviction that has to give them a 30-day chance to explain why they haven't paid their bills. In the meantime, I'm still on the hook for that monthly mortgage payment on that property. So I have to be very careful that the people I, quote, sublet or rent my home to, that I trust they're going to pay their bills. So I get the security deposit. I also make sure that they know when you're late, I'm docking from the security deposit. I have to treat it like a business because I could get screwed if they choose to stop paying. And the law kind of sets it up where they could squat for four to six months before they're kicked out. In the meantime, for those four to six months, guess what? Mortgage company still wants their monthly payment. Correct. Yeah, it's, 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 it can be very problematic in these type of things. Right. Um, Plus, when like, you become a landlord, guess what? Every single time there's a single little problem, guess who gets the phone call? Yeah, we, we have that problem, too. We, we have uh, my, my – a similar situation to you. You know, my, my wife has an apartment from her first marriage that we are still, uh, you know, renting. And, you know, all the time we get calls from the renters there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, oh, you got to fix this, you got to fix that, and then it's a question of okay, you know, what what are we responsible for, and what are they responsible for? You know, that's right. Thing. Sometimes it's a very there's a very thin line between those two. And on the one hand, you know, you might get fed up with the with the renter because they're asking you to fix all the other things. But on the other hand, if they're paying uh, on time, and you want to, so you want them to stay there as long as possible from that perspective right. too. Well, and that's where you have to and it I know it's kind of a side conversation that since you brought up subletting, but that's where you have to decide, well, what's the right price point so that way you're being paid not only enough to cover the mortgage or whatever you owe month to month as a piece of property, right. mm-hmm. but that you're making enough to sock away for when those things come up when they say, "Oh, the HVAC just went out," or the, right. all of a sudden the hot water heater's not putting out hot water or the gas isn't flowing. I've, I've you know? dealt with these things over the last year. And then, of course, you and I now probably have our Rolodex uh, to go back to uh, the beginning of the week. Mm -hmm. We have our Rolodex of handy people or uh, service people that we can call on who can go over and take care of those problems for us. And people that we trust that will give us a fair price. Correct. And not not try and screw us over from the whole thing. Completely. Right. I completely give you. Now, I mean, when I was when I was doing the research about the sublease, you know, it mentions that, that people sublease cars. Which, which to I me is just mind-boggling. Bog- mind right. Yeah, that's bananas to me. Yeah. yeah. You just, I bought you, a car. You... I just don't drive it anymore. You want to go ahead and uh, borrow the car, but uh, you got to pay me the car. No, but it's not that I bought it. It's that I leased the car. Right. Oh, yeah. I leased the I car, guess... and now I'm going to sublease it to you. So I don't know. <laughs> don't know. Well, that's I guess when crazy. you buy a car, you still technically, until you pay it off, if you've got a loan of any kind, whether it's leased or – you could technically still – I don't know how you – I don't even know how you would do that. Like, yeah, exactly. I have a car. I still owe, let's say, $20,000 on it. I've got a $500 a month car payment. But I don't feel like driving anymore. So I say to somebody, hey, um, I'm, I'm not going to sell you the car. I'm going to rent you the car for the next couple of months. You just got to pay me 500 bucks a month, and you can use the car. Right. This is weird. Yeah. I, I don't know. I couldn't think of any real situation where that works. You're right. During the conversation, they also have a, I, I love the the analogy about the uh, you know a balloon attached to a mouth like in a cartoon. You know, mm-hmm. and, and Billy Crystal Harry does a great job of miming 
the mm-hmm. you know the, the the way it is you know how it would look and stuff like that you know during their conversation and it just works really well so what do you know about uh speech balloons uh, okay <laughs> totally you sideswiped me on this one no idea you were going there so i don't actually know anything other than I know them because I've read enough comic books or comics in the newspaper to know the difference between a thought bubble, a speech bubble, when someone's yelling versus talking. But beyond that, I don't know anything about who first thought of it, created it, and how it's so now ubiquitous across the world that we just know what a speech bubble is. That is correct, and and you are about to learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I will – okay, Professor, hold on. Let me get my notebook out. I'm so going to take – I'm going to take uh, copious notes. There you go. So it's it's known as a speech balloon, but they, it's also known as a speech bubble or a dialogue balloon or a word balloon. Okay. It is a graphic convention used most commonly in comic books, comics, and cartoons to allow words and much, and much less often pictures to be understood as representing a character's speech or thoughts. Okay. Um, a formal distinction is often made between the balloon that indicates speech and the one that indicates thoughts. The balloon that, con- that conveys thoughts is often referred to as a thought bubble or a conversation cloud. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how far back do you think uh, speech balloons go? So would comic be your guess? books, comic books, what, late 20s, early 30s? So I'm gonna it's say not just comic books. The- it's also cartoons. Also cartoons. Um I'm still going to say the uh, the late 20s. Okay. They have actually found them uh, in uh, paintings on the walls that were done between 600 and 900 AD. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They even, found, they even found stuff written in Greek dated to the second century, um, which in, in uh, what is known today as Jordan. Okay, where they had descriptive text <laughs> resembling, uh, you know, bubbles, bubble text and stuff like that. That is crazy. Who thought – like how did somebody think of that so long ago, the idea Apparently. of a speech bubble? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so uh, – Wow. In you Western – like, You've just completely <laughs> destroyed my thought. Like there's no way I would have said anything that far ago. Right. So in Western art – Okay, it started in the the 13th century. Okay, and word balloons were known as uh, banderoles, which were used quite often in during the 18th century in America when they were doing political cartoons during the American Revolution. And who do you think was was doing the most of them at the time during the American Revolution? Who was who was printing the most political cartoons? Ben Franklin. There you go. Very good. You know, now that you say that, it makes sense that it would have been back more than the 20s because yes. I forgot about the advent of political cartoons or, you know, doing things to make political statements with just a, an image. Right. I mean, in, in all fairness, you were thinking more on the lines of, of comic books. So that's fine. Right. And you weren't thinking of, of cartoons or political cartoons and stuff like that. I wasn't. That's right. So when but I still they... wasn't thinking in the second century or at the very or even you know six eight hundred a.d i wasn't thinking that exactly right okay no that's fine it's it's fair but again you you were thinking in a completely different direction for what it is Mm -hmm. so because of the the influx of the comic industry uh a little over i guess 100 years ago uh you know at the beginning of the 20th century 
um, basically speech balloons have become completely standardized. You know, everyone, as you said, everyone is aware of them. Everyone, you know, if you see a speech balloon, you know what it is. Okay. Um, there is a comic strip character named Yellow Kid. Okay. Who, what they originally did was, is they would have his speech. It would be on his clothes. He had like this, this shirt. And whenever they would want him to say something, they would write it on his shirt instead of doing it in balloons. Okay. And then it reached the point where they, they started adding them to comic strips, comic books, and cartoons all the time that they would use them as a speech, uh, bubble. Okay. There's, you also have, uh, bubbles that deal with in-panel characters and off-panel characters, you know, and they deal with them a little differently. You know, someone who's, who's in, in the frame and someone who's out of the frame, you know, with the way that they will show their speech balloons and stuff like that. Mad, Mad Magazine used to have what was known as call and response dialogue, where you would have like one over the other, you know, you have it like in a row. And you have two people and they just have the little like arrow, not even arrow, like a little pointing pointed uh, area that would point to who the person is that's saying the, the dialogue and stuff like that. You know, it's it it's so intuitive. And because we've seen it so often, it just becomes something we just all know. I've even seen where they're having a back and forth dialogue in the same frame. And so there'll be multiple bubbles that kind of have where the one bubble on the left side is a little higher and there's like a little connection, but then there's the other bubble and you just realize you go back and forth because they're yeah, going exactly. back and that, forth. That's what I was discussion. talking about is it's, it's yeah. showing the dialogue back and forth, but, but you're reading them, uh, you know, from top to bottom. And then you can right. see each time, which one, like if we were doing that with Jess and, and Harry's conversation, you could do that also, that type of thing. You know, it's one after mm -hmm. the other, you know, with little points pointing to who the one you know, which one's on the right side and which is on the left side and stuff like that. So thought bubbles, they actually have two type of, of bubbles that are used. You can have either a chain thought bubble or a fuzzy bubble. Now we, we know that you have like the cloud-like bubbles, okay, which has the, the, the thoughts. And then sometimes you'll have uh, a chain where, which has increasingly smaller circular bubbles that are leading to the character. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then sometimes you'll have, Characters like like who don't talk like Snoopy and Garfield, you know that everything they're saying is are in thought bubbles because it's only what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they they even bring here an example that sometimes the character might be gagged or otherwise unable to speak, and therefore they will use you know thought bubbles also. Like when is Batman going to get here to, to 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 rescue me or something like that? You know that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something we just know. If you see a couple of a little bit bigger uh, circles, you know, two or three circles, and then the cloud, if, it, if it's got kind of the cloud pattern in the thought bubble, we know that that's not being said out loud. But if it's right. got a little kind of swoosh and then a perfectly smooth circle, we know they're speaking. It's, it's, it's a brilliant convention because you just know it when you see it. Right. 100%. So, all right, you, you mentioned that you know about a whole different types of, of, of uh, uh, various types of dialogue that are used in, 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 in comics and comic strips and whatever. So how would you, okay, you have a screen bubble, 
which has a jagged outline or, or thicker line, you know, when someone's actually, when they're trying to show that the character is screaming, you have what's mm-hmm. known as broadcast bubbles, okay, which is when somebody's communicating through an electronic device, such as a telephone, radio, uh, TV, or like it's a robotic or something like that, you know, they'll have like, you know, they'll, they'll have someone holding the, the receiver and you can, you know, they'll have the dialogue come out of that. Um, you have what's known as whisper bubbles, which has a dotted outline with smaller fonts, sometimes gray lettering and something like that to show that the tone is uh, lower than, than what, mm-hmm. uh, okay. You have icicle bubbles. Ah, for when somebody's being really cold or yes. delivering a line that's really nasty. Correct. You have monster yeah. bubbles, okay, when it, you have either blood or slime dripping from them. <laughs> Once again, you would just you just read into the tone or the style of how you're supposed to hear it in your head based on those bubbles, which is that's right. It, to me, is amazing. It, completely. And then the final one I have here is colored bubbles, which tries to uh, convey emotion that goes with the speech, such as you know if someone is angry, then they'll have it all in red, or if they're envious, they'll have it all in green and things like that. <laughs> do, do you do you know how they? will show that something is being translated from another language in a bubble. I'm sure I'd figure it out if I saw it, but I can't, I can't think of it off the top of my head. So they, they, they put angled brackets or chevrons in front and then in the end. So if you see that in dialogue, it's basically someone is speaking in a different language, but it's been translated to English or whatever language. So we can understand it. Right. Okay. (laughs) And then uh, the, the final thing, which I'm sure you already are familiar with is, is, you know, what do you do when you want to have profanity? Oh, you can use uh, symbols. You can use like the pound sign, the asterisk, That's right. exactly. dollar sign. And you do even know that there's a name for that? No. It, well, well, it's called a Grolix. A Grolix, huh? A Grolix. G-R-A-W-L-I-X. I've never heard that before. Neither That's amazing. I. Yeah. It, it's amazing sometimes you, you, that things have names that you just aren't, you have no clue about. You know, right. stuff like that. So one of the things that I found here that was really fascinating also is the fact that in the novel Who Censured Roger Rabbit, which I think is the 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 the, the novel that the movie is based on, I assume, or maybe it's a sequel, I don't really know. Um, you have a character that was murdered, and when they when they uh pick up the body, there's a speech balloon under the body that is showing their last words. So I just thought that was really, really clever the way that they do that. Hmm. That's cool. Yes. Okay. So we're done with, we're done with, uh, with, with speech balloons. <laughs> <laughs> so also he mentions the fact, you know, that, that Helen was decided that she didn't want to, you know, cause him any problems and ruin his birthday. Right. So to me, I, that I said to myself, okay, right now we're in the middle of the fall. Okay. The odds are that, Nora Ephron or Rob Reiner decided to use that time period because of, it was probably someone's birthday around that time, you know, that would work well. Um, but I looked up everyone who's connected to this movie. They're like big names that are connected, and there's not a single one that takes place in the fall. Billy Crystal's birthday's in March. Rob Reiner's birthday's in March. Nora Ephron's in May. Nicholas Pelegi, who's Nora Ephron's husband, in February. Carl Bernstein, her ex-husband, February, um, and then her first husband, Dan Greenberg, was in June. So it just was there for the dialogue. (laughs) 
you know, I was I was hoping to find some sort of connection, you know, that that you know that would explain, uh, you know, why they decided to make Harry's birthday in the fall, but hmm. you know, because it never comes up in the movie after that. No, I think it, 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 since there obviously wasn't one, and you did an exhaustive search, I think from a writer's perspective, it's just for the the humor of the story. Yes. Why didn't you tell me sooner? Well, I didn't want to ruin your birthday. So I'll wait right. till two days after, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we Make... were so close to Christmas. I didn't want to return the gifts I bought you. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Exactly. Makes sense. So then he mentions uh, the name Mr. Zero, right? One of the, mm-hmm. the movers. Are you familiar with any uh, real people or characters that are known as Mr. Zero? Not no okay i actually found three okay the first one is the original name of the batman villain mr freeze was mr zero who appeared in batman uh comic number 121 in february 1959 and he was known as mr zero they renamed him a few years later uh, Mr. Freeze. So I'm assuming it was Mr. Zero, like being zero degrees. Like sub-zero, I guess, type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there could be. There is a song by the Yardbirds. I don't know if you're familiar with that band. I'm not. Keith Reif is the, was the singer, and the song is called Mr. Zero. It reached uh, number 50 on the UK singles chart. I don't know. Okay. Then there is someone who was known as Mr. Zero, who... His real name was Urbane Ledoux, Ledoux, L-E-D-O-U-X. He yeah, lived from Ledoux. 1874 to 1941, and he was an American diplomat, and he was known as Mr. Zero. Um, I, I couldn't find in the article why he was known as Mr. Zero. <laughs> All I knew is that he, he was an advocate of the Baha'i faith. It's the only thing that I could really find on him, uh, but he was a uh, an advocate for all these different things, uh, you know, during that time period prior to World War II. But I, I don't know why he was, you know, he, he was it, basically what says here, it says he was later known as Mr. Zero, preferring his own name not to be prominent. Ah, okay. He Because everyone will remember the name uh, Ur- Urbane Ledoux. <laughs> so let's just call him Mr. Zero and we won't know who he is. <laughs> right. I don't know. And then uh, there is a band named The Kings. Are you familiar with that band? It's a Canadian rock band that formed in 1977 in Ontario. And one of the, the, the original members of this band was known as Mr. Zero. He was, uh, his, his real name was John Picard. Sometimes he's listed as Mr. Zero and sometimes as Aryan Zero. That was his uh, you know, call name. <laughs> for the you know on on their their records so i i thought that was a little interesting that you know they just throw that uh throw that out here even though we don't see a mr zero you know we just see someone you know we hear about someone who who's you know wearing a shirt that says don't with mr zero mm-hmm. you know, we don't know if that person is mr zero or not you know maybe it's maybe it's from the rock band who knows well i think yeah. we have to infer that Mr. Zero is the name of the guy wearing it only because as the dialogue progresses, uh, Jess says, so Mr. Zero knew before you. Right. He's like, okay. Yeah. But that, that's how they're referring to him, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it really is Mr. Zero. 
Yeah. But well, but Billy Crystal doesn't dispute. Harry doesn't dispute. Like had Jess gone, oh, so Mr. Zero, well, he wasn't Mr. Zero. I don't know who Mr. Zero. He didn't do that. Like he just goes, yeah, Mr. Zero knew. Well, because he wasn't going to say, okay, you have a shirt. This is Mr. Zero. What is your name? You're not going to say that. You just, you know, sometimes, you know, we we, we all learn from Seinfeld. You know, you 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 give nicknames to people based True. just on appearance. You know, you True. don't have to to you know to inquire what the person's real name is. Right. He could have just referred to him as Gap Tooth Man if, because he had a gap tooth. Right. I got exactly. You. Exactly. That's true. So that's pretty much all I have for for. I, I think it's enough that I had for this for for today's di- uh, dialogue. I mean, it's, it's a great conversation. It works really well. In some ways, it sounds like an Abbott and Costello routine. The way that they're talking back and forth. You know, the the their timing is is almost perfect here. You know, the way that the, this conversation goes between the two of them. So mm-hmm. I, I really like that and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the delivery, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, it's it's comedic without trying to be funny. You know, Correct. they're not, mm-hmm. not. If you were to if you were to watch this with no sound, you would think they were having a fairly serious conversation. They're not making faces. They're not doing a lot of weird things. But they, because of the delivery and because of the pause and because of the the, the repartee. It's it's got a comic feel for it, and be, it keeps it more humorous, given they're talking about something pretty heavy. Yes, correct, correct. So the script, there is absolutely nothing different in this particular minute. It is wow. word for word in the script. This dialogue, they they didn't need to play around with it. They they kept it. You know, Jeff Jeff knows dialogue, so they they chose the right way to do it. You know what I like about learning about people like Billy Crystal and others, especially when you look at a script analysis and you realize that there are some actors who feel, I guess, a, a duty to bring the 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 author's words, the scriptwriter's words to life as written. And if you do it well, you can do a great job. And then there are no I know plenty of actors who get recognition for being great performers because they manipulate and change and they never say the same line twice. I'll be honest. I'm one of those actors. If I'm working with someone, I want you to say the lines as written because that's how I'm going to respond. And uh, when I work with people who just change the lines for the fun of it and you don't know what's going on, it can be a lot harder to keep up. Right. Okay. That that makes a lot of sense. On the flip so side, every- I know a lot of movies get made where they go, all right, here's where we kind of want to go. Run with it and let's see what we right. get. No, but it also depends on who it is. I mean, Billy Crystal is known for ad living. Robin Williams was known for oh yeah for completely, you know, throwing everyone off with his ad libs. You know, there there are a lot of actors that are known for the fact that you're not going to get from them what's there, you know, and you're hoping you're going to get something better from them. And I'm assuming that most directors will go into recording with them or filming with them, uh, knowing this, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. That they're going to try to stay somewhat close to the script, but not, you know, and, you know, some of Rob Williams' best work is is his ad-libs. So, right. Well, and I also know on the flip side, (laughs) you may have, let's face it, not everybody's Nora Ephron. Sometimes you may have a script that just isn't quite as punchy and a director will say, okay, well, let's just do a take and you come up with a, how would you react if they said this? Right. I mean, Harrison Ford, we have plenty of examples where directors have said, well, well, give me what you think. And it ends up being the perfect way to say the line. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. And if and if anybody's listening right now and you have zero clue why we both just said I know, you you need to watch more movies. 
<laughs> yes. Go listen to Alex and, and Pete. They'll 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 explain that one to you. <laughs> season two, season two. That's <laughs> so every Wednesday we have a segment called Harry Burns Hump Day, where my <laughs> guests will give where my guests will give their top five uh Billy Crystal films, best Billy Crystal performances. I'm gonna, I'm throwing that, that wrench to you again. You know. Okay. No. I I I did my homework with that in mind today. Okay, good. Good. You see, you can be taught. I can. I'm like <laughs> a dog. Sometimes I have to have a treat. Sometimes I have to have a a, a water bottle. Uh, and sometimes I get it right the first time. Okay. That works. All right. So But we still we still love you, five. Alan, so it's fine. Well, someone <laughs> it's nice that someone does. Yeah. Uh number five for me. Uh, it's a little older movie, but I loved it as a teenager, and I've wanted to go back and rewatch it, but it's one of those movies I hope is just as good if I were to watch it today as it exists in my head right now, Running Scared. I knew you were going there, and I was so happy to see that. I love Running Scared. I love the way – I mean, Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines are amazing in that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the comedy is just great. The The story itself has been done so many to other times. Uh, since and before so uh, you know the story isn't that great but their performances are just amazing and hilarious mm. so yes you I, should you should check that out it will I, be I will, on I, my list it's not on my list to just do movies by, to do minute by minute over the next few years so you know sorry you'll have to watch it on your own and not be forced to watch it because of me number four and it's be, it's not a lead but it is one of the most quotable movies and one of the most quotable characters in a quotable movie. We have to go with the princess bride. Again, your, your introduction gave your, gave you away. Well, I'm good. I want the audience to play along too. That's right. I'm playing along. (laughs) I knew that's where you're going. Number three, a movie that I cracked up because I never expected to see a character play his character like you normally would in a gangster film, but it's a comedy. And to put these two characters together side by side and yet make it comedic, I laughed all the way through Analyze This. Number three. I know. What did you think of sequel, the sequel? Analyze That? It was okay. It was basically it was Analyze This over again. There's not, you, could, you can't really redefine and re – you can't do a whole lot new. So right. they just did a lot of the same. Uh, but yeah. analyze this. I, I, in my mind, I had never thought of Robert De Niro as being able to be funny while being the same kind of very serious Oscar-worthy gangster that he's known for. Right. So to see him play that kind of character, but in a way against Billy Crystal that made it funny, was awesome and still yeah. one of the still a great movie, great dialogue yeah. movie. I agree with you. Uh, number two. We never see Billy Crystal, but this character would not be able to be as lovable and fun and funny were it not for his voice, Monsters Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And number one, for me, a guy who has a soft spot for the Old West, loves horses, loves westerns, and the fact that we have a, a, a city guy who goes out west and has not only an amazing adventure – but learns a whole lot about himself, which means we learn we learn a whole lot about ourselves through his eyes. City one slayers. thing, one thing, one thing. <laughs> What's the one thing? That's for you. That's for you to find out. Yes. Well, Jack the one Palance, thing is, I mean, come on. One. 
<laughs> you got Jack Palance in it as a cowboy. He's had so many westerns where he's played so many characters, both uh, Mexican banditos as well as regular, uh, I guess, Caucasian westerners or western uh, western characters. Um, it's that is such a fun movie, and I actually like the sequel. It's not as good as the first one, but they're worth watching back to back. Yes, for sure. Even without Bruno Kirby in it, which was unfortunate. The, apparently, the two of them had a a falling out. And that's why he wasn't in the second one, which is which is kind of sad because yeah. you see him here kind of in this movie, and then right away a couple of years later they do City Slickers and they play off each other so well, adding Daniel Stearns as that third kind yes. of person in the triumvirate. Correct. All right, Alan. So you want to? I got to tell, tell you, how- I do this all the time. I the 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 line from uh, you know Bonanza when he's singing the song but he's like rolling 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 keep them doggies rolling boy my ass is boy rolling, my ass is rolling <laughs> I do that all the time I said Bonanza I meant rawhide but I mean I right. I say that line I sing that all the time just because it's one of those lines that has always stuck with me that's how that's how much city is like your ass is always swollen no, just if I'm doing anything, I'm working out, I'm or I'm I'm hurting, you know, from doing a lot in the yard, or it doesn't matter. At, at my age, it could be I got up too fast. No, I'm just kidding. Exactly, it could be. It's <laughs> fair. But no, seriously, it's it's such a fun movie, and that's another one I deserve uh, deserves a rewatching. I haven't gone back to it in probably a decade. Right. Okay, that's fair. I mean, another thing about Bruno Kirby is they claim that the reason that the official reason that he didn't come back for the second one is because he's allergic to horses. And he, you know, during the first movie, he had to get shots all the time mm. uh, because of it. So, but I, I had always heard that they had a, a really bad falling out and they didn't talk to each other for like a decade. You know, that's what I had heard. But wow. you know, it could it could just be celebrity gossip. Who knows? Um, all right. So, Alan, you want to tell people how they can get in touch with uh, Alan Sanders? Yeah, you can find me personally, if you'd like, on uh, multiple social media outlets. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Getter, Truth Social. You can just search The Alan Sanders Show because I do uh, a lot of radio shows. I have a, uh, a, I have a daily digital news talk program called The Alan Sanders Show uh, that's found pretty much everywhere you find podcasts. But it's literally my flagship station is the number one station in Atlanta. Uh, WSB radio. So if you want to go to the actual website, it's WSBradio.com forward slash the Alan Sanders show. And uh, that's where I kind of comment on the news and topics of the day. I do a show with my wife called the marriage fit podcast. And I do a show with my buddy, Walt Murray called the wilder ride where the first two seasons were very much like this, looking at a movie a minute at a time, but then we turned it more into a talk show where we got a chance to interview some really cool, fun people. All right. Excellent. And while you're doing that, you go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcast you might be using to listen to this show. Finding me is very simple. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook, or you can go directly to my website, moveyourupminute.com. So until tomorrow, I'll have what she's having. I'll have what she's having. Gave me a thrill with all your faults. I love you still. It had to be you. Wonderful you had to be you